You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Thanks, Josh. My soul needed that this morning. What a joy to worship together, to sing of the unfailing love, to sing of the confidence we have uh, in a Savior who will defeat every enemy, and that includes the enemy that resides within us, our own sin and death that follows. I'm so grateful. Um, As we gather... um, just reminded this morning before we go to God's word. Um, it's a tough season in our country. I don't know if you've noticed some stuff going on. Um, and uh, we're encouraged uh, in First uh, Timothy. Paul says, first of all, I urge then that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. Um, I'm going to take a moment and, and pray for the leadership of our country, of our province, and, and uh, pray for, for God's work in our nation if you join me. Father, you know the turmoil more than we do. You know the, uh, the trials um, that, that are assailing our country right now. God, we pray for peace. Lord, we long, as would be your good blessing, to, to, to have uh, peaceful and quiet lives. And Lord, we know that only comes through you. That only comes to um, a people and a government who will submit to you. So Lord, we want to lift up Justin Trudeau before you this morning. We want to lift up Jason Kenney and, and Lord, all those who are gathered around them who give leadership to this country. God, would you be at work? Lord, we long for peace and, and prosperity for this nation. Um, peace to proclaim your gospel freely. Peace to live um, quiet lives that, that honor you. So, Lord, um, we ask first that you would save them, that you would open their eyes to the truth. God, I pray that you would bring um, men and women into their lives who would be able to point um, to your gospel call them to uh, repentance and faith and that there would be uh, radical transformation. But Lord, we ask for wisdom for them um, that they might lead our country, our province uh, in a way that would honor you to all of the, the voices in their ears right now. God, I pray that, um, that your voice would speak. But Lord, help us. Help us in this time to know how to honor you, to walk faithfully before you. Um, that your name would be honored, and God, help us to hope in you. Even with all the turmoil, um, we're reminded again, this is not our home. And this government and no government will, uh, will replace the kingdom of God. You are on your throne. You are sovereign over all of this. And so, Lord, we ultimately look forward to uh, the reign of Christ and that day when Jesus will be king, and that will be our home, and there we will have true peace. So Lord, lift our spirits. Uh, help us to focus on, on that hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, kids, you can be dismissed to children's ministry. Um, your teachers are at the back. They'll meet you there. So um, you can make your way out. Half the congregation stampedes to the back. While the kids are making their way out, let me just invite you to grab a Bible and open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the pew near you. Go ahead and grab that. Open it up. We want you to have God's Word in front of you. I have nothing of value to say. I come to God's Word just as you do, and our hope is to walk away having all been challenged and encouraged by God's truth, um, not by my wisdom by any means. Um, If you're using one of those 
Pew Bibles. Um, it's on page 958 is what you're looking for, 958. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or one you can read easily, please take that one with you. We want you to have it. It's our gift to you. I'm glad to, to have that uh, in your hands. Um, it has been, uh, it's been almost 20 years since I have moved out of my parents' home and got married and started my own family. And, and yet, it still slips out. When we go back to my parents' place, uh, maybe it's for Christmas or Easter or whatever it is, um, I still say every now and then, we're, we're going home. We're going home for Christmas. We're going home for Easter. Um, it still has a place in my heart. And, uh, and it's always a bit of chaos as we get in the front door and get settled and everyone's getting luggage in. But there's, there's one moment or, or maybe a, a series of moments when, um, when we're really there, when we've made it, when we get to settle and relax and breathe out and say, this is why we're here. And, and it's when we all pull up our chairs around the table. Dinner is served and we're, we're gathered, we're together, we're, we're feasting together. And, and maybe that's Christmas dinner or Easter dinner or just the first supper as we've kind of arrived and everyone's together and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and there's something about sharing a meal together. It's significant. A fellowship that we share, the sense of, of belonging and, and closeness, there's an intimacy there that's, that's special around food. And I think there's even something significant in, in the joy we share uh, as we enjoy a good steak together, as we delight in a, in a meal together, as we have that satisfaction in us having filled our bodies with nourishment and, and relaxing around the table. There's something special there, something I think God has weaved into humanity for a purpose. And I think that imagery, the, the reality of, of just having a fellowship together around a meal um, plays into the meaning, the imagery behind the practice of the Lord's Supper. It helps us as we seek to, to understand the question, why? Why the Lord's Supper? Why communion? Typically, um, we work through books of the Bible systematically, and that will be our practice going forward most of the time. Um, but we're taking 10 weeks right now at the beginning of our year just to ask some questions about the church. Why do we do the things that we do? I want to pause and just kind of reevaluate what's the meaning, the significance behind these things. We don't want them to become routine or, or just to be hollow traditions. We want to know what we're doing and, and why we're doing it. And so last week we talked about baptism as five people were baptized. Um, this week, um, the next logical step, we want to talk about the Lord's Supper. What is it with this little meal that we have together at the end of the service that we call communion or the Lord's Supper? What's it all about? Why do we do this? Why is it important? Well, first, the Lord's Supper um, began uh, at the, the first Lord's Supper, or we will call the Last Supper. The disciples gathered together with Jesus for his last earthly meal. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very clearly, it's mentioned a little more vaguely in John. Uh, and then Paul teaches about it in 1 Corinthians 11. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, um, verses 23 to 26. It's this beautiful, complete, concise statement uh, of the Lord's Supper and, and what it means. And so very early on in the church, these verses became kind of the the go-to passage to read as we take the Lord's Supper together because it's kind of just neatly packaged there for us. Um, and so it's incredibly significant and, and we want to understand that more. We've read these verses every other week for the last six and a half, almost seven years as we've gathered. Um, let's dive a little deeper. Let's make sure we know what we're talking about, what we're saying as we do this. So follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Thank you for the treasure that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that that entails. Lord, you know my weakness. You know my inability as a jar of clay entrusted with this gospel. God, I just call out to you now. Would you be at work? Lord, in my weakness, in my inability, would your gospel shine through? Would you use me in spite of myself? Lord, I pray for us as your church. Lord, you know our slow and hard hearts. You know our tendency to to think that we've heard it all before or to approach your word in a cavalier manner, to be self-defensive. Lord, would you just break all of that this morning in us that we might hear your word, that your truth would penetrate that we would be um, appropriately broken before you, that you might restore us, that you might show us your glory, that you might knit us together as the church, that we might know and love the Lord's Supper for all of the depth and richness that there is there uh, as we look into your word. So God, do what only you can do this morning by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul begins with this statement of, um, I received from the Lord um, what I also deliver to you. And so we're, we're looking at this, this Lord's Supper, um, and, 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 and there's more in this passage than we're going to be able to get to today. There's more background and, and history, and, and you'll be listening to me speaking like, does he know about this and this and this and this? Yeah, we just can't get to all of it. Um, it's rich and abundant. Um, but the Lord's Supper um, is a symbol. And so a symbol, by its very nature, points us to look somewhere, points us to, to something else. And so as we approach uh, this text, we're going to look at it under, under four headings having to do with where the Lord's Supper directs our attention. Um, the Lord's Supper calls us to look backward, to look upward, to look inward, and to look forward. So that's, that's where we're going, and, and my hope is we can, we can maybe put some of the major foundation pieces in place uh, and, and hopefully answer some practical questions along the way. Um, let's begin verse 23, which, which gets us looking backwards. And by that I mean uh, looking at the, the biblical history behind the Lord's Supper, the, the foundation upon which Jesus was building on that first, um, that first last supper, the first Lord's Supper. Verse 23, as I said, Paul says, I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That's an interesting statement out of Paul, um, the only apostle who was never part of Jesus' band of disciples while he was on earth. Um, He was not present at the Last Supper. And so what's he talking about? How can Paul say that? Well, it's it's entirely possible that the language here um, simply means that he has received it from the Lord by way of kind of oral tradition, that the apostles passed it down to him. Um, That that would be a a decent reading of this text, and and many understand it that way. Um, I'm a little more prone to a different understanding, I think that it's possible that he did receive this directly from the Lord. Um, If that surprises you this afternoon, go read Galatians chapter 1. And uh, there's this neat little tidbit about Paul. Um, After he was saved on the road to Damascus, um, it says uh, that he didn't go and learn from any man, but he went off into Arabia for three years. And he says there that he was taught the gospel, not by man, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's, that's all we know about those three years of those verses. Seems to me that Paul went away and, and I assume studied the scriptures and that God was revealing things to him. God was basically the, the three years that the other apostles spent with Jesus um, were, were filled up in Paul's three years with Jesus uh, in Arabia. Um, bit of a mystery there, but it's really cool. Anyway, I think that may have been the time in which the Lord said, here, This is the meaning behind this and is revealing that to Paul. Either way we take it, 
it needs a closer look. Uh, the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. Now, there are significant details behind that. What was happening on the night he was betrayed? What was happening when he took this bread? Any Jew reading this knew full well what was going on. And, and, uh, and it's not explicitly mentioned here in 1 Corinthians, but it matters that the meal that they were sitting down to, that last supper, was not just any meal. It was a Passover meal. And the bread that he broke and the cup that he would later pass around were not just a, any ordinary bread and cup from an average day meal. It was the bread and the cup of the Passover meal, part of their tradition, um, part of what God had instituted. And so I think Jesus is saying, if you're going to understand the Lord's Supper, if you're going to understand communion, you have to understand the Passover. You have to understand the, the background to this. Passover was the defining mark of the, the history of the nation of Israel and, and their, their identity as God's people. It began in the middle of Israel's exodus out from Egypt. They had been slaves in the land of Egypt for 400 years, beaten and abused, and God came to their rescue. He came to save them, to free them from captivity. He brought about the, the 10 plagues in Egypt and it broke the back of Pharaoh, destroyed, wiped out that, that world power nation. And the 10th the plague, the last plague that, that broke Pharaoh's back was this angel of death coming. The angel of death would come and he would kill every firstborn son. The Lord was, if you will, kind of pulling back his restraining grace and allowing his wrath to be poured out on every firstborn son. And, and that then included not just the firstborn in Egypt, it was the firstborn through Israel as well. But with God's wrath came grace, came a way to escape. And they were to escape that death of the firstborn um, in his mercy by, by taking a sheep out from their flock, a male lamb that was one year old, was the age of maturity, a lamb without spot or blemish, and they were to bring him back into their house and they were to slit its throat. Imagine that with your kids. This cute little lamb, we'll bring him in, he's going to be with us for a week, and then we're going to slit its throat. And his blood is going to spill out. They were told specifically they were not a bone was to be broken, but the lamb was to be killed. And that first Passover, they were to take the blood from that lamb and smear it on the side and top of the doorposts of their house. And anyone who did that, any family then who gathered together in this home with the blood smeared on the door um, would be protected. Everyone was sheltered by the blood of that Lamb, the angel of death, would then pass over. That's where the name came from. And of course, um, the Israelites who trusted God um, predominantly, we don't know if all of them did or not, we don't have the details, but at least, at least the vast majority of them did this. They followed these directions, they killed the lamb, they huddled together in the house, and they were protected. But countless Egyptians died, including the son of Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh, of course, seen as a god as he ruled over Egypt, uh, and his offspring then being the next ruler uh, was killed by the God of Israel. And the people of Israel victoriously then march out of slavery into freedom, and they're, they're made this new nation, God's people. God then instructed them, you're to continue every year, year after year after year, um, to remember that exodus, to remember how I sheltered you under the blood of the Lamb, how I had mercy on you and rescued you out from the nation of Israel. And so they were to go through these practices every year, killing the Lamb and spreading the blood and, and retelling the story to their kids for generation after generation. This is what God has done. And they did. For 1,400 years. Fast forward then to Jesus' coming, the beginning of his earthly ministry. John 1.29, John the Baptist is out baptizing people, calling them to repentance as he sees Jesus come over the ridge and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the new Passover Lamb. 
He was spotless, without blemish. He had no sin in any way. He was male, obviously. He was of the age of maturity at 30 years old. Palm Sunday, as he came into Jerusalem, it was as if the Jewish people said, this is our lamb, and they welcomed him in to the city. And then Passover weekend, he was killed. Amazingly, though he was killed by crucifixion, not a single bone was broken, but his blood was poured out. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 puts it clear as day. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. And so as Jesus is sitting down with his disciples for this Passover meal, the last Passover meal that he would suffer the night before his death, and he's passing out these elements, and he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. They're thinking, I thought this was about Passover. Now Jesus is saying it's about him. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, this is the new exodus. The the real Passover has come. The true exodus, the true Passover. The rescue of God's people out from Egypt. The rescue of the nation of Israel out from Egypt. That was never the end game. That was not a, a culmination. That was the beginning of something. That was this living metaphor pointing forward to Jesus, to God's ultimate plan of salvation. As the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, we were born as slaves to sin, under the bondage of, of sin, enslaved by our own rebellious and sinful hearts. And the penalty of death hangs over us for it. The angel of death will come. The wrath of God will be poured out. But once again, God offers grace. There's a way of escape. All those who will shelter under the blood of this lamb. That is, who by faith will will apply the blood of Jesus to their life. Will, will, Will recognize their need for a rescue from the bondage of sin. Trusting that that Jesus is this this new Passover lamb who could die in in your place. Then the angel of death will pass over. You'll be rescued just like Israel was. You'll be rescued out of slavery to sin into this, this new nation, this new people of God. So Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying, I'm the the fullness of what Passover was promising and building toward. This is it. And this is the reality of God's true escape plan, rescue plan. So as we partake together of the Lord's Supper, just like Israel looked back on that that story of the first Passover, we look back at, at the death of Jesus. We celebrate what God has done to, to rescue us. Communion is the the ongoing celebration of our our liberation from our slavery. Now this raises a couple of practical questions. First, who can take communion? Who's it for? Is it for everyone? Well, you can't eat the Passover meal unless the blood was smeared on your doorpost. Unless you're one of those who has been rescued. You can't remember what you have been rescued from and celebrate your having been rescued unless you have indeed been rescued. Communion is for those who have put their faith in Christ, who have trusted him and his work on the cross, who have said his death was for me. I've been brought out of slavery into new life and I am one of God's people. So just like baptism... We talked about last week, communion is this kind of outward symbol of an inward reality. The outward symbol is meaningless at best if there is no inward truth behind it. That leads us to a second part of that question of who can take communion. Um, This is not a law. This is not something we take a a hard line stance on. But but if you look at the symbols and their meaning, um, baptism is this kind of one-time physical symbol of of my initial faith. It's the picture of the the moment of my salvation. 
that I've been crucified with Christ and made new, given new life in him. And so baptism is the beginning of that new life. Communion is the regular ongoing practice, the the remembering of that event. So in some ways, communion is remembering and celebrating our baptism. We have a lot of parents with young kids here. And I know it's often a question, at what point should I let my kids take communion? I mean, they want it from the beginning, right? I mean, who doesn't want juice and cookies at church? That's, this is great. Um, at what point do I start to allow them to take communion? Well, I think, and again, this is not a hardline rule, but if you look at the symbols and how they work out, I, I would say it's a very logical stance to take to say that you take communion after you've been baptized, after you have made your own stand for Christ and made that public and and become part of the church, then you get to celebrate communion with us. I think that's a helpful way as well to to communicate to our kids that, that you're not saved just because you were born in church, just because you have Christian parents. You don't you don't inherit faith. Nobody's born as a Christian. You need to make your own profession of faith. You need to do this for yourself. You need to trust in Christ. And that then leads to baptism, which would follow naturally into communion. So communion calls us to look backward, to understand its history, to understand that that liberation from our sin as we celebrate that. But then secondly, um, the Lord's Supper calls us to look upward, to look upward. Verses 24 and 25 are the the heart of this passage and and the heart of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Um, Verse 24, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In this new Passover meal, the bread reminds us of the body of Jesus. His body broken as the loaf of bread is broken and his body is broken for us. He died to pay the, the penalty for our sin. And the cup, originally wine because that was what they drank all the time. That was their custom. That was their uh, culture. We, we use grape juice, um, but the imagery is the same. It's the blood of Christ. We're called to to look up, to remember him, to remember his sacrifice. Jesus says the new covenant in his blood. That's what we're remembering. What does that mean, this new covenant? let's, Let's do a little more background work. God had made an old covenant, one with Abraham as an example, promising that he would make Abraham into a great nation and that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Sound like Jesus? That's the gospel going out. And he made this covenant with Abraham. Um, And as God did this covenant, he kind of stole from the culture there. He used a, a, a commonly understood practice in that day. It was typical of a a commoner or a lesser king um, devoting themselves to a a ruler or maybe a conquering king. Um, And they would agree what was expected of each party. They would lay out kind of the expectations of this covenant. Uh, And then they would take a selection of animals, and it was fairly graphic. They would cut the animals in half and lay the halves down opposing each other uh, kind of on either side of a path. And together, both of the people making the covenant would walk between these torn apart animals. And it was as if to say, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, that's what I deserve. I deserve to be torn apart. God made this covenant with Abraham. You read through um, Genesis 11 and and on to 14. Um, They agree on the the terms of the covenant. Here's what's expected. God says, um, I will give you the land of Canaan and, and I will make you into a great nation through which the whole earth will be blessed. This is what I'm gonna do. Abraham's side of the covenant, his side of the deal was to have faith, to trust God. And then shockingly, Genesis 15 
Abraham fell into a deep sleep or a, a stupor, and he looks on as God himself walks between the animal halves alone. Abraham never walks through. God is saying, I will make this covenant with you, Abraham, but I will take the repercussions. If you break the covenant, the, the punishment of breaking that covenant will fall on me. I will pay the consequence. God made another covenant, the people of Israel, through Moses at Mount Sinai. After rescuing them out of Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea, they gather around the mountain. God gave the Ten Commandments. That's their end of the deal, the, the book of the covenant there. You need to do these things, Israel. And then he promised that he would be uh, their God and they would be his people. That was God's end. The seal of that covenant was that there would be a series of sacrifices made in the tabernacle, later in the temple. Goats and bulls throughout the year would be ceremonially slaughtered. And their blood would be sprinkled then on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, this, this golden box they were instructed to make with the Ten Commandments inside. God was saying, look, I get it. You're not going to keep these Ten Commandments. You're not going to be able to walk perfectly in this covenant that I have made. But if you will slaughter an animal and, and put that blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant um, where God's glory would dwell, he said, that's where my presence will be above the Ark of the Covenant. As I look down to see those Ten Commandments that you have broken, between me and the law that condemns you, there will be the blood of an animal. I will accept a sacrifice in your place. I will accept the, the death of these sacrifices as your substitute for breaking the covenant. These sacrifices were ongoing, never ending. Year after year after year, the temple was a bloody, bloody place. Because they didn't truly deal with sin. They were pointing forward. That wasn't God saying this animal sacrifice has dealt with your sin. It was saying, trust me, I will deal with your sin. And when Jesus is introducing this long-awaited new covenant at the Lord's Supper, this new covenant is sealed in his blood. Jesus, as God himself, took on human flesh so that he could die. God cannot die, but God in flesh can. He's fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham, that, that God himself would bear the responsibility for that broken covenant, that, that he would be killed. The promises made through the law of Moses, that, that he would accept a substitute in our place. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. He was himself our substitute. God was saying, even though you broke the covenant, I'll pay the penalty. And so I will keep up my end of the deal. I will still be faithful, even though you are not. And I will cover the payment for the broken covenant. This isn't just the new covenant. It's also the last covenant. It is the ultimate covenant, the culmination, the, the completion of, of every previous covenant comes to climax right here. Listen to Hebrews 10, 1 to 5. For since the law, it's talking about the law of Moses in particular, was a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, not have, uh, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Do you see the logic? The law was a shadow pointing forward. That's why it had to just keep going, because it didn't actually cleanse sin. But... In these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's not enough. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
Those old covenants, the blood of bulls and, and goats, they were, they were never enough. They were never the main thing. They were but a shadow pointing forward to the reality to, to Christ. Sacrifices and, and offerings, those were never enough. Those never truly satisfied God, but he gave a body to Jesus Christ. Implication, that would be the sacrifice. So down in uh, Hebrews 10 verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. The priests never sat down. There was no chair in the temple because the work was always going, always continuing. This revolving door, Jesus offered one sacrifice and sat down. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Once and for all, in that moment, it was done. It was always about Jesus. So communion, we're called to look upward as sinners who, who've rebelled against God, who rightly deserve death, who have, who have broken this covenant that we have before God, that we owe him our obedience and our very selves. And we're reminded every time we come to the Lord's table, in the words of one of my favorite hymns, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. That's the new covenant. He did it. It's completed. So we, so we come to the Lord's table to fix our eyes on him, to remember this new covenant in his blood. We come as broken, struggling sinners reminding ourselves over and over again that his body was broken for me, that his blood was poured out for me. In his death, he offered the ultimate sacrifice once and for all, purchasing full, complete forgiveness. To quote another old hymn, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord of my soul. The Lord's Supper calls us to look upward. I want to clarify again just a little bit here. We'll get into a bit of historical church conflict. What exactly are we looking upward for? What do we receive in the Lord's Supper? I don't want to get into the weeds on this. Um, the Catholic Church um, believes that the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, when they are prayed over by the priest, they become the body and blood of Christ. The, the, the physical aspect of it doesn't change, but the essence of it is. And so they believe they are ingesting the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. If you want your fancy theological word for today, that's transubstantiation. Write that down quick. Um, so, and, and in the, the Catholic understanding of salvation... That is where you receive actual grace. You must go to Mass. And in a sense, the sacrifice of Jesus is happening again and being applied to you. You are receiving grace in that. So that is a mandatory thing that you must do to be saved. The Lutherans, um, of course, Martin Luther starting the, the Reformation, um, he, he wanted to, to rescue the Catholic Church. He was trying to fix the things that were going on. Um, he took one step back from that. They would say that, that as we do, salvation is by faith alone, or sorry, by grace alone through faith alone. And, and so um, we would line up with them on that, but they still take a little bit more of a, a mystical view of the Lord's Supper that, that the body of Jesus um, is spiritually present in the elements, not in any physical, material way, but, but, but the presence of Christ is kind of in, under, and around the elements, they would say. The um, Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, John Calvin, to some degree, um, would, would take up and argue the position that has become the, the predominant evangelical position. And they would argue that when Jesus said to the apostles, that first Lord's Supper, this is my body, they were also looking at his body. They didn't think that was a literal statement. They would have understood that metaphorically, very naturally, just as in the same way Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant. Nobody thinks the cup is the covenant. It's a symbol of the covenant. Besides that, the body of Jesus is human. 
is finite and is seated in glory with the Father. And so it cannot be everywhere present. And twice Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. The thrust behind the practice of the Lord's Supper is remembrance. And so this position we call a memorial position. We're not mystically receiving grace. This is an act of remembering. Now, don't be, don't be fooled into thinking this is something lesser. We get looked down on. Oh, you don't really believe in the wonder of the Lord's Supper. No, absolutely I do. But I believe in it in, in, because of the strength of what happened on the cross. Because in contrast to the Catholic view, I believe when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, he meant it. It was finished. It's complete. The sacrifice of Jesus does not continue on. It was paid. It was done. As Hebrews 10 teaches, he offered a single sacrifice and sat down. It was done. He perfected for all time those who were being saved. And though there may not be a a, a mystical infusing of grace through the Lord's Supper, is that really what we need? Is that what we're called to? Is that what our hearts need? Are we saved by grace? Through faith. And is it not spiritually sustaining, spiritually life giving as we gather together in a significant way um, to remember Christ? In faith, to be reminded again of his sacrifice, to, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It is spiritually strengthening and life-giving and vital for us to gather together as believers and take the Lord's Supper as an act of faith used by the Lord in significant ways to strengthen us, to encourage us, standing confidently in what Christ has finished on the cross. So the Lord's Supper calls us to look backwards. Then it calls us to look upwards. It also calls us to look inward. For this, actually, we need to Uh, expand our text a little bit. We need to understand the verses surrounding the passage that we've been looking at. Um, There's this lovely, idyllic passage about the Lord's Supper, verses 23 to 26, and we love to read those all by themselves because the verses around them are ugly. Um, This beautiful passage is couched in a harsh rebuke. Let me just read these for us. Um, Look back to, to verse 17. Paul says, In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Then he talks about the the Lord's Supper and the, the significance of that. And then verse 27, he carries on. Whoever, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be Judged, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned among with the, along with the world. So a lot going on there. Paul says when you're gathered together, uh, it's not a good thing right now. Um, it's almost would be better if you wouldn't. It's not for the good, but for the worse. Because some are gorging themselves and getting drunk and others are going hungry and being neglected. There was an absolute neglect of the other brothers and sisters. There was division and factions He says, I wish you wouldn't do that. It would be better if you didn't gather at all. And he talks about the significance of the the Lord's Supper, the the body and the the blood poured out for us. And, And then verse 27, he warns, whoever therefore eats of the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
And so also verse 28, let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone does, who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. We can, we can come to communion in a way that is dangerous. And Paul says, this is why some of your members are sick and some have even died because of God's discipline of this sin. That should scare us a little bit. Every time we come to communion, we should come with just a little bit of trembling and we should be looking inward. We should examine ourselves. What does that mean? What are we looking for? What does it mean to, to partake of the, of the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner? Well, let's, let's first set ourselves um, a, a guardrail. Because if by unworthy we mean sinner, then we're out. We're all out. And, and actually, um, the Lord's Supper completely loses its meaning. No, sinners are called to come for grace or come to, to shelter under the blood of the Lamb. That's what, it's, that's what it's about. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That was the reason for the cross. This does not exclude sinners. But there are numerous ways that we could come in an unworthy manner. And the first would be to come as an unrepentant sinner. Something in your life that you know is wrong, that you just refuse to let go of. This is my pet sin. And I know the Bible says A, but I'm going to continue doing B anyway because I, I don't care. You, you better be careful as you come to the Lord's table. That's not what is pictured as we take uh, the bread and the cup. That's coming deceitfully. You're holding on to that sin and protecting it, and that's a problem. Or it could become ritualistic. Not discerning the body, not, not thinking about the body of Christ at all. Not thinking about anything. It just, this is what we do. We just do it out of habit. It's an action done without faith. That's an improper way to, to partake of the Lord's Supper. That's why we always want to give time for reflection and, and read through this text again that it reminds us what we're doing and why we're doing it. Another option would be to come uh, the way the Corinthians had come. Not discerning the body in, in their context was, was not, not discerning the body of the church. Not recognizing that we're one family, that we are together as brothers and sisters. They had, they had these divisions. There was, there was bitterness and brokenness and anger. They're, they're not walking in love toward one another. Jesus spoke a similar thing in, in reference to, to temple sacrifice, but I think it absolutely applies here, Matthew 5. 23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If you've sinned against someone and you've not repented of that sin, you've not asked for forgiveness of that sin and there's a rift between you and that other person, you need to hold off. You, need to, you should not be coming glibly to take communion if there's this division of sin between you and another believer. It shouldn't go that way. You need to repent. You need to restore that relationship. Now, I understand relationships are complicated. We are broken people, and sometimes there will be people who you cannot please. It doesn't matter what you do. They will not be reconciled. They will not forgive you. In that case, I think Romans 12, 18 is helpful. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So there is a point where I have done all that I can. The rest is in their court. I can't do anymore, but let's not take that too lightly. As far as it depends on you, anything you can do in laying down your pride and humbling yourself and in trying to restore that relationship, but at some point, um, maybe you've done all that you can do. The call of verse 28 is clear. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Communion has this sanctifying effect week after week. 
That's why Paul brings it up here. You have these divisions among you, and this is what happens every time you get together. Well, when you get together for communion, you should be stopped in your tracks to to examine yourself and recognize this sin. We look inward. We take stock of our sin, of our faults, of our failures. We're we're brought again to repentance and holiness, convicted to, to grow in following the Lord. We cannot ignore unrepentant sin or division in the church when we come together for communion. It puts a spotlight on us. It has this purifying effect in that way. And that should lead us to repentance. And in repentance, then, we come to the table. Again, not as perfect. We come broken before the Lord and grateful for his sacrifice. The Lord's Supper calls us to look Backward to see the the fulfillment of all God's promises coming here. It it, it calls us to look upward, to be reassured again by the grace of God as our sins are fully covered by the blood of the cross. To look inward, to examine ourselves and our relationships. And then finally, it calls us to look forward. And, And I just need to admit bias here. I love this portion of this text. This is balm for my soul. This hope of verse 26. Listen to these words. Paul adds, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Just another quick practical note. Paul adds this comment, as often as you do this. So how often do we do it? What do you mean, Paul? Um, as often as you do this. We go to Jesus. Jesus, how often, how regular should we do this? Well, Jesus just says, do this in remembrance of me. That, that is the extent of information we have on how often we should celebrate the Lord's Supper. Some churches understand the, the connection to Passover. As often as you do this, as often as you do the Passover dinner, and they have the Lord's Supper once a year. A great celebration. They come together uh, and, and remember the sacrifice of Christ. Others would lean harder to the often side of things. Uh, It seems like in the early church, looking through kind of Acts 2, Acts 4, they they may have done it every day for a while or at least every week. But really, there is no clear instruction, do it this often. It's left open. And so our schedule, we've said, let's do it every other week. Our hope is to be frequent without becoming Route, uh, rote routine, um, consistent but not, not mundane and taken for granted. But there's freedom in that. Uh, that's just where we've landed. But let's look at the rest of Paul's comment. However often we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We won't do this forever. The, the new covenant is an eternal covenant But this way of remembering it and celebrating it is temporary. Jesus introduced the first communion. He laid that out. Matthew 26, 28, he said this, For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is fasting right now from wine, waiting for the day that he will drink it again with us in the kingdom of God. The very first Lord's Supper sets this out. And for 2,000 years, week after week, month after month, year after year, the church has gathered together, setting their eyes on that day. Oh, it's coming. Followers of Jesus looking forward to the final Lord's Supper when there will be a meal with Jesus in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus used the the Passover meal specifically, but this this theme of the meal in general um, is is so much richer and so much bigger. I think there's an argument to be made that it starts all the way back in Genesis 1. God creates Adam and Eve, and where does he put them? In a garden with a table set before them of of all the the fruits of the trees. It's all there. You're provided for, and the presence of God is there. They have this ongoing, consistent meal with the Lord. However, they disobeyed God. They went looking for their their life, for their sustenance, their fulfillment, um, other places. 
They rebelled against God. They were disobedient to him. And so he kicked them out of the garden, out of the presence of the Lord. And yet God continued to invite humanity back to the table. After rescuing Israel out from Egypt and, and, and bringing them to Mount Sinai, after giving them the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant, li- listen to this story. This is one that I missed until we were working through the book of Exodus, and it blew me away. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, so 70 elders, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, went up, up the mountain, up Mount Sinai, and they saw the God of Israel. That's mind-blowing. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And they did not lay, sorry, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They saw God in his holiness and they were not obliterated. So that's grace. And then they ate and drank. Where did that come from? Where would the food and drink come from? They're having a meal in the presence of God. Can you imagine how weird that would be? And how amazing that would be? This is God saying, relax. Like they're trembling and, and freaking out. And God says, here, have something to eat. Be comforted. Be filled. There's good things in my presence. And, and he's saying, this covenant that I'm giving to you, these laws that I'm bringing you, this is, this is how you will come back to me. This is how you will enter back into my presence the way a child comes home for dinner and sits down around the family table where you belong, where you're satisfied.